Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Next week is the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops Annual Fall Assembly. Bishop Rhodes will be there as not only a representative of the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese, but also as the chair of the Doctrine Committee. And that committee has been preparing a document that's been stirring up some controversy since the spring. It addresses the issue of worthy reception of communion and whether or not, for example, a pro-abortion politician should receive. On this episode, Bishop summarizes the teaching document on the Eucharist, the process for making amendments to it, and the subsequent vote that will take place. The show wraps up with another topic that'll be discussed at the conference, socially responsible investing. If you have a question for Bishop to answer on a future episode, submit it at spokestreet.com slash askbishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, here again with our good Bishop, Bishop Kevin C. Rhodes, the Bishop of the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese, also the Chair of Doctrine for the USCCB. That's right, the Doctrine Committee. But you know, Kyle, you and so many others say Bishop Kevin C. Rhodes. Uh huh. I would rather Bishop Kevin Carl Rhodes. Okay. Although you can just say Bishop Kevin Rhodes. I'm laughing about this because <laughs> just recently, I mean, I'm always getting introduced as Kevin, Bishop Kevin C. Rhodes. Uh huh. And I thought, why the letter? Yeah. Either drop it or say Carl. I thought that was like the official <laughs> name. No. No? Well, not really. I okay. Mean, I guess no. It's I'm just being <laughs> funny, but anyhow, I do like my middle name because it's after my grandfather. Yeah, but I never hear it. <laughs> like if if they were announcing you to be speaking, which they will, I assume, at the conference, how would they address you? Or, or they would probably Nancy? say Bishop Kevin Rhodes. Okay. Yeah, I don't know that they would use middle name, although our name tags usually have the middle name on it. Okay. Would they say where you're from as well? Oh, yeah. Every time? Well, no, not every time. I mean, you know, the bishops know where I'm from. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know every bishop by name? No, I don't. Okay. I, I, it's, it's gotten harder, too, because with new bishops being named, you yeah. know, I have to try to keep up. But no, I don't know all their names. That's why it's good. I mean, there's over 200, so it's yeah. good that we have name tags. And you only see each other what, twice, twice a year. year. Yeah. But I would know more than half by name. So we have an upcoming conference. Uh, it's coming this Monday. So it's the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, or the USCCB. This is your biannual meeting. Plenary assembly. Okay. Mm-hmm. Full in, body of bishops. In person. In person. Is first in Baltimore. In person. It's always in Baltimore in November. Wow, it's been a while yeah. since before the pandemic. Yeah. Are you excited for it to be in person? Yeah, I mean, it's always good to be there in person with Brother Bishops. Yeah, yeah, it's so much better than Zoom meetings. So it'll be very good to see them. So in general, is this something that you look forward to? Is it something that you're like, eh, it's something I have to do? Or I, I look forward to. Okay. I do, because it is, it is enjoyable to see Brother Bishops. Some uh-huh. of them are good friends of mine. Yeah. The meeting in June is a little less business. You know, there's usually more prayer. And even sometimes we'll have a full like retreat type meeting in June. And that I really enjoy, you know, it's just being together mm-hmm. as brothers, praying together. And But usually the November meeting has a lot of business. Yeah. So speaking of the June meeting, we talked 
after that happened, maybe before as well, about the document that you had presented, which was just an outline for the the Eucharistic document proposal. Correct. And that got approved, the outline for it, with, with a little bit of controversy or, or discussion or debate. That's putting it mildly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, maybe you can give us an update on, just a quick update on what happened in June and then what's happened between then and now and where... Yes, in, in in June, the bishops voted to move forward with the document that that I would um, prepare uh, a document with the Committee on Doctrine that I chair, and then we worked on it. Since then, we had uh, an administrative committee. We've had several meetings of the Doctrine Committee, but then we had to present the text to the administrative committee, the draft, in September to get their approval for it to be on the agenda in November. Okay. So the administrative committee actually unanimously approved for it to be on the agenda. So during the meeting, I will present the document. The bishops have already received the draft. Okay. And are sending in any suggested modifications. And our committee will review suggested modifications prior to the plenary assembly. We'll be meeting, uh, I believe it's on Sunday, in Baltimore, the, mm-hmm. the meeting begins. The meeting of the full body bishops begins on Monday with mm-hmm. prayer, but on Sunday we're going to meet and uh, decide whether to accept modifications or not to accept them, or maybe to accept them but make modifications to the modification. <laughs> okay. And then uh, after I present it on Tuesday, there will be a discussion. Bishops can on the floor. Mm-hmm. Bishops can ask me questions. They can make comments. They can propose amendments, like if, for example, if they disagree with something that we accepted or did not accept in the modifications. So then, so then we meet Tuesday night as a committee to approve or reject amendments. Okay. Then the next day, which is Wednesday, I think I have these days correct. Wednesday, I'm back up on the at the podium. And we'll report what amendments we accepted, what ones we did not, or those that we accepted with modifications. And then a bishop from the floor could ask for, if they don't agree with what we decided, Mm -hmm. could make a motion for the whole body of bishops to vote on an amendment. Okay. And once all that's done, then there's actually a vote regarding the document with its amendments, and um, we need 75% of the bishops to approve if it's going to be issued as a document from the USCCB. So it's quite a process. Um, Say a prayer. Uh, I'll be kind of, um, you know, trying to manage all of this when when the debate or discussion, I should say, is happening. Sure. Uh, But I'm confident in the document. I'm we worked hard on it, and I could share a little bit generally yeah. with uh, with our listeners if you want. Yeah, but maybe start with how long is the document? Uh, the document is 26 pages long. Okay. Some think that's too long, but with all the suggestions and all the things that bishops wanted to be included, to do that, it would have been much longer. I mean, mm-hmm. we had to try our best. I mean, you can't cover all the aspects of the great mystery of the Eucharist 
in 26 pages. Yeah, maybe we should back up. What is the goal of the document? Well, the goal of the document is to present a teaching document. The USCCB's strategic plan for the next three years, beginning this year, was to focus on the Holy Eucharist. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is a focus of the whole conference. So we agreed, our committee, the Committee on Doctrine, agreed to develop a proposal for a document on the mystery of the Eucharist, which, as you know, was approved by the body of bishops last June. One of the reasons is we've seen in recent surveys uh, that there is a lack of understanding among many Catholics mm -hmm. about the nature and meaning of the Eucharist. So ours is a teaching document addressing the fundamental doctrines concerning the Eucharist that the church needs to retrieve and to revive. You know, this is part of the, also the three-year Eucharistic revival, and I'm part of the working group. I, I think I might have spoken about that on this show. Hmm. But basically, it's a call to all the faithful to respond to the gift of the Eucharist through ongoing conversion moral transformation, and missionary discipleship. We address it to all Catholics of the United States, and we try to explain the centrality of the Eucharist in the life of the Church. So it really is a theological contribution to the ongoing work of the strategic plan by providing this as a doctrinal resource for parishes, catechists, and the faithful. What level would you say it's geared towards as far as like theological density. Uh, like could a middle school student read this and, and grasp it? Or is this more for the educators? I would say it would be more for educators, but I'd say for average Catholic adults. Okay. And I would think it, and I would use it in high school. Okay. I think it would probably be a little too deep for grade school. Mm-hmm. And it, there'll be print copies available when this oh, is yes. done? And, okay. I mean, presuming it gets approved, right. Kyle. <laughs> okay. So are you going to please pray? Yeah. So what is some of the content in there then? Yeah. I mean, after an introduction, um, I'd say the first half of the document is on the Eucharist as a gift. Mm -hmm. And the second half is our response to the gift. Okay. So in that first section on the Eucharist as this wonderful gift from God, we focus on how the Eucharist is the sacrifice of Christ. And that's very, very fundamental, that this is a gift that the Lord gave us on the night before he died at the Last Supper. When we think about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, it's the greatest gift, the gift of his love. And that gift that he embraced, I mean, that death that he embraced out of love is sacrificial. He offered himself, his life out of love for us. He was the priest offering a sacrifice, and he was also the victim being offered. What's so amazing is Jesus willed that this sacrifice be present for us until the end of time. And that's why he gave us the gift of the Eucharist. That's why he instituted this sacrament. And he becomes present, of course, under the forms of bread and wine. It's really central to our faith. 
I mean, Jesus commanded us, do this in memory of me. So it's a sacrificial memorial, mm-hmm. representation of the sacrifice of Christ by which we are reconciled to the Father. So it is a sacrifice, it's a meal. We are to eat his flesh and drink his blood. So we can speak of it as a sacrificial meal. It was prefigured in the Passover. And we we do talk a little bit about the Passover. And then we explain how when we celebrate the Eucharist, Jesus is not, is not sacrificed again. Mm-hmm. What the Eucharist does is it makes present the one sacrifice of Christ our Savior. It represents, it makes present the sacrifice of the cross. And then the other major theme on this first section is the real presence. You know, from the very beginning, the church has believed the words of Jesus in John chapter 6, that whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. So we're not talking about ordinary bread, ordinary drink. It's, it is truly the flesh and blood of Christ. And so we really want to emphasize this because there are a lot of people who think of the Eucharist as merely a symbol. Right. Now, how is Jesus truly present in what appears to be bread and wine? It's through the power of the Holy Spirit and the priest saying the words of Jesus, that the bread and wine are truly transformed into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. Of course, it still looks like bread, tastes like bread, looks like wine, tastes like wine. But in faith, we know that it is truly Christ. We speak of this as the real, true, and substantial presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And the change, the mysterious change, the church calls transubstantiation. Mm-hmm. So this may seem like basic catechesis, that, and it is, but it's important because obviously there are a lot of Catholics who don't know this right. or don't believe it. Right. So we... Um, we focus on that. Then, then the, the third part of that first section is on Holy Communion. Uh, basically, that it's even the Eucharist is called Holy Communion because it puts us in communion with the sacrifice of Christ, in communion with him and with one another. Mm-hmm. That's why we call it Holy Communion. And we talk about how the church is born from the sacrificial love of Christ in his self-offering on the cross, blood and water flowed out from his side, symbolizing baptism and Eucharist. So we're incorporated into the body of Christ, of course, through baptism. But baptism is ordered, like all the sacraments, towards Eucharistic communion. Hmm. We talk a little bit about the obligation to attend Mass every Sunday. We talk about the importance of our worship of God, especially on Sundays as members of the mystical body of Christ. And then the second part is on our response. So do you have, I don't know if you have any questions on that first half. So I guess, how was that put together? I mean, how do you have a committee write something like this? Do you do a first draft or does somebody else take a stab at it? A lot of of thought and prayer. I would say that um, 
in our initial meetings, we talked about what we wanted to have in the document. Uh-huh. And two, uh, three themes that came out very strongly were the Eucharist as a sacrifice, the real presence of Jesus, mm-hmm. and what Holy Communion means. Mm-hmm. So the staff then, after hearing a lot of our observations, started working on it and organizing it. And then we had different meetings where we contributed to it, where I might have written a paragraph and said, like, this in it. So it's a process. Yeah. That just sounds like basic catechesis, like this is what your second graders should be learning, maybe at a slightly lower level, but what should be, they should be learning before their first communion. And we should be reiterating this throughout CCD or your Catholic school or at home as well. Correct. And so just good reminders and clarifications and maybe a, a little bit deeper than yeah. maybe some of us have, have gotten or, or maybe we missed out on. Right. Yeah, I, I do think, for example, the whole notion of the Eucharist as sacrifice, I don't know that people reflect on that right. enough. So I think that's really important. I mean, obviously we know that some people think it's only a symbol. Mm-hmm. So even though we've... You know, I've preached on this a lot. I imagine most priests have. We still have a substantial number of people who, who don't understand or, or uh, don't believe it's Christ truly, substantially present there. So, it is reiterating what I would have considered very basic. Yeah. So it's kind of alarming that we have so many people who who don't believe in the in the real presence, right. or we don't make the connection between like the Last Supper and, and the Eucharist and the sacrifice. They seem like two separate events and we don't make the connection that these are both part of a bigger whole. That Correct. They, Correct. They are, uh, I don't know how you would say, like almost like a symbiotic relationship or something like that, that they both are contributing to this theological truth. Correct. And the whole notion of this is a gift that... It's a beautiful gift when you think about Mm -hmm. it. It's a gift of God's love and to be more thankful for the gift. And that's what gets into the second half of the documents, which is our response to the gift. And the first thing that we we say is thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. That's the response. Thanksgiving and worship, the very name Eucharist means thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. So... How can we repay the Lord for all the good he does for us, you know, and including how can we thank him for this gift? So in order to give thanks properly, uh, we talk about, first of all, being conscious of the gift, engaging our minds and our hearts and our bodies in every part of the liturgy to actively and consciously participate in the liturgy, to listen carefully to the readings and the homily. So the whole idea of a gratitude, then we express that in our worship. And the worship should be beautiful. Mm -hmm. The liturgy needs to be celebrated in a manner that's befitting the sacredness of what's taking place. So we do get into that, the importance of reverence in the celebration of Mass, not only at Mass, but even our worship of the of the Holy Eucharist outside of Mass. So we talk about adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, exposition, and we certainly 
recommend that as a, a wonderful way to express our thanks. Mm-hmm. We then look at transformation in Christ. When we receive the Eucharist worthily, that helps us and enables us to live the new law of love given by Christ. Because really, that's what the Eucharist is. It's the sacrament of love, of his love. So this brings about a transformation within us. We receive this grace from the Lord. The Lord nourishes us with his body and blood. And that then is should shape our life and how we act. It's not enough to go to Mass and then just forget about it. You know, no, we are called, our mission is to go forth and live the Eucharist, mm-hmm. live what we receive. That goes for all of us, priests, bishops, laity, religious. One of the things the Catechism says, and we mention this, is the Eucharist commits us to the poor. Mm-hmm. That we are also to recognize Jesus in the face of the poor, like Mother Teresa did. I actually insisted that we include Mother Teresa in yeah. the document, and we include her a few places. And we also quote Matthew 25, mm-hmm. you know, because that parable of the Last Judgment, where Jesus says, Whatever you do to the least of my brothers and sisters, you do to me. Right. I mean, that's so important um, that the Eucharist commits us to to service. As Pope Francis has warned us about this throwaway culture, that we need to fight this tendency to see people as disposable. Mm -hmm. Um, The Eucharist commits us to that, that we are to care for and respect, you know, other people, including the unborn, Mm -hmm. that this is... And, and the elderly, and we quote Pope Francis on this, that if we're truly living the Eucharist, then we're committed to the dignity of every human life. Hmm. Uh, so we have these social responsibilities. We mention other aspects of the throwaway culture, poverty and injustice, violence, and how all this goes against the very nature of the Eucharist. We should never see anyone as disposable. So we should not be indifferent to the suffering of others. And that gets us to the next topic, which is conversion. Hmm. You know, at the very beginning of Mass, we're called to conversion. We're invited to acknowledge our sins in order to prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries. So that penitential rite at the beginning of Mass is necessary because we're all sinners Mm -hmm. and sometimes fail to live up to our vocation as disciples of Jesus. So we need to continually heed our Lord's call to conversion. We're especially reminded of that every Lent, that we, we trust in His mercy. We should have humble and contrite hearts when we say before going up for Holy Communion, Lord, I am not worthy to receive that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. Interestingly, at this point in the document, we do a little catechesis on mortal and venial sins. Okay. And that may seem basic, but it needs to be, I I wonder, 
people really understand sometimes. You know, we can think of those sins and everyday faults that we call venial sins. They don't break our covenant with God or deprive us of our friendship with God, but we still shouldn't take them lightly mm-hmm. uh, because they weaken our communion with God. And the Eucharist strengthens our charity and wipes away venial sins. And the Eucharist helps us to avoid more serious sins. There's that famous sentence that Pope Francis has said, and it's gotten a lot of media attention, including, um, well, yeah, he said it in his first apostolic exhortation, uh, Evangelii Gaudium, that the Eucharist is not a prize for the perfect, but a powerful medicine and nourishment for the weak. Mm-hmm. And that is very, very true. But there are other sins that do rupture our communion with God and with the church, and those are mortal sins, where there's grave matter, and we freely, knowingly, and willingly choose to do, to commit the sin. Mm -hmm. And we make it very clear that one should not celebrate Mass, means a priest, or receive Holy Communion in the state of mortal sin without first going to confession and receiving absolution, Mm -hmm. which means one repents. And when one receives communion in a state of mortal sin, one doesn't receive the grace of the sacrament. Actually, one's committing another sin, the sin of sacrilege. It's not showing reverence to the body and blood of Christ if a person knowingly receives Holy Communion in the state of mortal sin. It's a contradiction. So that's part of what we call worthy reception of Holy Communion. And then we get to the issue of, of, um, that's our invisible communion. We could call that invisible communion. You know, whether we're in the state of grace or in the state of mortal sin, that's something that's not visible. It's invisible. Okay. And the person himself or herself has to examine their conscience to see. We never know the state of another person's soul. We sure. can't judge that. Right. That's up to the individual. Where the controversy has come in has mm-hmm. to do with the visible dimension. Okay, that what we could call visible communion. And if we're in visible communion with the church, it means that we're in communion with the teaching of the apostles, okay? So we believe in the articles of of the creed. Mm -hmm. You know, we're in communion with the faith of the church and in communion through the sacraments, baptism, for example, and in the church's hierarchical order. We're united with the pope and in the bishops. That's what it means to be Catholic. Those three things, the profession of faith, the sacraments and the hierarchical uh, communion. Mm -hmm. So in receiving Holy Communion, one needs to be in communion with the church Mm -hmm. in this visible dimension. And this is where most of the controversy has been. This is where most of the debate has come in, especially regarding people who are pro-choice or or are dissenting from fundamental teachings of the church, fundamental mm-hmm. moral doctrines. And, you know, we know that when such a person, and if it's public and right. it causes scandal, you know? So 
we do talk about this. We do not skirt this issue. Mm-hmm. And we'll see with the debate how it goes. Obviously, only the person himself or herself can make that judgment about being in a state of grace or state of mortal sin. But we're talking here objectively, not subjectively. In other words, outward conduct. If outward conduct is serious, this is John Paul said this, is seriously, clearly, and steadfastly contrary to the moral norm, the church needs to be involved. And the Code of Canaan Law says that one doesn't have the proper disposition to receive communion if he or she obstinately persists in manifest grave sin. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's Canon 915. So that's the big debate is about this Canon 915. So in our document, we, we explain that and we talk about the importance of that good examination of conscience so that one is properly disposed to receive the Lord and Holy Communion and that a person who is not properly disposed should um, should not approach the Eucharist. But we don't want to leave people in despair. We say, well, there's always a remedy. The remedy is repentance. The mm-hmm. remedy is confession, the sacrament of penance. It's a beautiful opportunity to be restored to God's grace. Now, all we need to do is be truly sorry and resolve not to sin again, confess our sins, and do the assigned penance. Again, this is probably basic catechesis, but yet extremely important. Mm -hmm. And finally, then, we talk about how, and this is something that I worked on myself in writing the document, The Lives of the Saints, how the, um, the Eucharist is food for our journey to heaven. So the power of the Eucharist in our lives and the fruits of Holy Communion, the good fruits, faith, increase of faith, hope, and charity, so I use different examples. You can guess Blessed Carlo Acutis, who okay. I've talked about a lot, and also St. Jose Sanchez del Rio. Uh-huh. And then people like St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. We put a special thing about people who are converts to the faith or thinking of coming into full communion in the Catholic Church because of the Eucharist, like mm-hmm. St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. We invite people to, especially Catholics who have left the church, or don't practice the faith. We invite them to come home. I put a quote in there from Mother Teresa. It's a a beautiful quote. Uh, She said, once you understand the Eucharist, you can never leave the church. Hmm. Not because the church won't let you, but because your heart won't let you. Oh, wow. That's a good one. Uh, And then finally, we don't keep the love that we celebrate in the Eucharist to ourselves. We're to share it. Again, we're sent forth at the end of every Mass to bring his love into the world. That's what we do. Go in peace, glorifying the Lord by your life, or go and announce the gospel of the Lord. So this call to be missionary disciples, to evangelize, that's also that's how we end the document. And hopefully um, we will be able to have this document approved. Yeah. And uh, so I gave you a pretty thorough summary. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, say a prayer that it, it it's approved. Well, and I appreciate you running through that. And yeah, definitely, we all should pray for all the discernment and any changes that may be made to it. Uh, that 
this is be a great resource for our church. The part that you mentioned being the controversial part, I, people talk about Eucharistic consistency. Yes. So you mentioned that we shouldn't present ourselves if we're in a state of mortal sin, if we're uh, disagreeing with fundamental church teachings. I don't imagine there's a whole lot of controversy with that statement. The controversy, I assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, is with the church intervening and policing that, saying that I would refuse you communion should you present yourself. Because like you mentioned earlier, we can't judge another person's soul. At the same time, if they're doing something publicly, we can be aware of the, the state that they're in and saying, look, you're not in the state that you need to be to receive communion. Yeah, they're not invisible communion. Right. We can't judge the invisible community. Right. We can't judge their souls, but we can judge the outward conduct. And if it's what we say is if they obstinately persist okay. in manifest grave sin, they are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. Okay. So first of all, they should refrain themselves. Right. But Canon nine fifteen says the minister should not admit them to mm-hmm. communion. Now this doesn't happen very often, but that's um I mean the big debate is over these rapidly pro abortion politicians. Mm-hmm. Now, in order to determine that they're obstinately persist, you have to meet with them. You mm-hmm. know, the bishop or priest in wherever they live needs to give them a warning mm-hmm. and, tr- well, first of all, try to help them to understand how this is not okay right. as a Catholic, and then invite or ask the person not to approach. And if if they continue to do so, then they're not to be admitted. Mm-hmm. And that is where there's a lot of people who disagree with that. But, you know, actually, this has always been right. the tradition of the church. and. I guess some just want to get rid of Canon 915, I think. So is that addressed any differently in this document than it has been in the past? Or Well, I think we, we address it as I shared with you, uh-huh. um, but I don't know that it's been addressed enough in the past. I don't think many people even were aware of this. But how is it applied? I mean, some are wanting the the conference, the USCCB, to apply it to President Biden or Mm -hmm. to Speaker Pelosi. Well, we have no authority to do that. That's their their own bishop. Their local bishop. Their local bishop. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this will also be helpful to the bishops too. Yeah. You know, so, but yeah, you're right. And of course, it's the secular media and actually the Catholic media too. They have focused so much on this, almost exclusively on this. Now, it is part of the document, but the document is a lot broader as, as our listeners just heard. But I, I would guess that's the part that's going to de- to generate the most discussion at the meeting. Okay. Well, there's another topic that I know you're going to be addressing at the meeting that I want to talk about. But first, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can call or text the Holy Cross College text line. That's 260-436-9598. And another topic Bishop will be discussing at the meeting is socially responsible investing We'll hear more about that coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. 
In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop, and we've been talking about the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, their conference coming up on Monday. And of course, the document on the Eucharist will be a big part of that conference, but not the only topic. I'm really curious to hear what you're going to be sharing or talking about regarding socially responsible investing. Yeah, the Committee on Budget and Finance of the uh, USCCB will be presenting a recommendation to update the uh, so socially responsible investment guidelines. Basically, they were last updated in 2003. So we're talking quite almost two decades. And even though this is coming from the Committee on Budget and Finance, I was on the working group that was chaired by Bishop Gregory Parks, the treasurer of the USCCB. So I've been at several meetings uh, where we look at this, it's it's really not only how we invest the USCCB's money, but actually it's used by Catholic dioceses, Catholic institutions like Notre Dame, okay. all over the country. So it's pretty significant. Okay. And um, we use it here in our diocese when it comes to how we invest our savings or how we invest our endowments. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that we're not investing in an irresponsible way. Okay. Um, you know, I, I use these in, you know, my own savings. Obviously, when we when anyone invests money, they want to have good returns. You know, you want you want to have good um, dividends, but but you don't want to do it at the expense of morality. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's important that we have ethical investing, socially responsible investing. And so we evaluate in this document that we're asking, these guidelines, specific investments. Uh, I mean, we're required to, I mean, we give guidelines for how to evaluate specific investments in terms of how the companies or the entities that we're investing in protect life, uh, promote human dignity, act justly, mm -hmm. enhance the common good, and provide care for the environment. These are all important values. And shareholders, you know, you could say, well, they don't have a whole lot of, of power in governing corporations, but, but they can and should vote on selecting corporate directors and investment questions and policy matters, not just by what are the returns gonna be, What's the financial gains that you're hoping for? Right. But we want to ensure that we invest in corporations and institutions that promote human dignity right. and enhance the common good. We don't want to gain revenue by unjust means at the expense of human life or human dignity. Mm -hmm. So investment strategies are to be based on Catholic moral principles as outlined in the teachings of the church, 
teachings of the Holy See, statements of the USCCB. So this is, um, I think, a really important thing. We need to be fiscally responsible. We want to obtain a reasonable rate of return on investments, but we need to exercise ethical and social stewardship in our investments and uh, have strategies that are based on Catholic moral principles. You know, it could be that we refuse to invest in companies whose products or policies are counter to the values of our Catholic moral teaching, mm -hmm. or if we already are, divest from those companies. Right. But we can also work for active change. In the sense, as a shareholder, you know, the USCCB can influence or try to influence the cul corporate cultures and to shape corporate policies and decisions. So sometimes the moral th issue is so serious that we'll, we'll not invest or we'll divest. Or maybe it's something where we can still be investor, but we work for a change in the policy. So the document will kind of give some suggestions in that regard, the guidelines. We really look at five major categories, okay? So number one is protecting human life. So we look at issues like abortion, euthanasia, and assisted suicide. Anyone who directly participates or supports those things, we will not invest in. That's mm -hmm. kind of a, that's been our longstanding practice. Also in vitro fertilization or embryonic stem cell and fetal tissue research, human cloning. You know, so we get into those specific issues in these guidelines. The second is promoting human dignity. So we look at human rights, promoting human rights. If a company persistently violates human rights of their workers, mm -hmm. things like that, uh, that is obviously very problematic. Also discrimination companies that discriminate against people based on their uh, sex or race, skin color, language, or religion. When it comes to human dignity, also the issue of pornography, commercial sexual exploitation. We won't invest in companies that, that do those things. Um, human trafficking, forced labor. Those would be the first two. Contraception too, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, then enhancing the common good. We won't invest in firms that derive any revenue from the production of weapons that are inconsistent with Catholic teaching on war, like biological weapons or chemical weapons, landmines. We look at media and telecommunications. We want to do what we can, especially like social media companies. We want to avoid groups that are involved with hate speech and or attacking religious freedom, things like that. Fourth would be pursuing economic justice. So our guidelines encourage social, environmental, and financial responsibility. So we actively promote, uh, promote that in our guidelines. For example, labor standards, just wages. We want to make sure that the companies we invest in have just wages, decent working conditions, protection of children, et cetera. Mm -hmm. When it comes to encouraging companies to have ethical and responsible banking, um, 
impact investing. That's another interesting thing. I got involved in this, uh, learned a lot about this when I was on the board of Catholic Relief Services, where we actively choose to invest in corporations and organizations that that are in communities of poverty. For example, trying to help get businesses going, for example, in the developing world, like in countries in Africa, et cetera. Generally, when we invest in things like that, we probably won't make as much uh, money as if we invested in other companies. But I think impact, we can have an impact in you know, overcoming some of the social inequalities and unacceptable conditions of poverty that impact a lot of people. There's this Catholic Impact Investing Collaborative that's in existence now that is doing things. So, Where, where would we find that? I think you could do a Google search. Um, I know that the USCCB collaborates in this collaborative, but um, I'm not too familiar. I think it's catholicimpact.org. That's an example. Okay, yeah. Catholicimpact.org. Yeah. Catholic Impact Investing Collaborative. Yes. Very interesting. I'll definitely check that out. And the fifth area, of course, is saving our global common home. Mm -hmm. um, and I think here, because since the last time we updated these, these guidelines, uh, we now have the encyclical of Pope Francis Laudato Si. Right. The problem of climate change and the terrible impact of climate change. Uh, so we will, you know, want to invest in companies whose uh, business models are consistent with the goals of the Paris Agreement and also that obviously don't contradict Catholic teaching. Mm -hmm. So companies that have greenhouse gas emission uh, reduction goals, et cetera, you know, we want to encourage that. Yeah. Uh, also biodiversity, encouraging companies to protect the environment, the ver variety of land, marine, and other ecosystems. I think I shared on this program my visit to Haiti and the terrible effects of the deforestation there. Hmm. So the importance of protecting forests and, and biodiversity in general. Also water, um, the importance of, of fresh water that are so necessary. So we don't want to invest in companies that contribute to the degradation of water or the depletion of water without mitigating the impact. And also technology. Um, you know, technology companies and their responsibilities in the area of promoting the dignity of the human person, protecting the environment. So we want to make sure that, um, that we're careful there. But you can read it if the document gets passed. And uh, I hope that with these guidelines that we can help develop a uh, promote the common good and, um, and make for a, a trustworthy, help to make a trustworthy economy. Yeah. Will there be anything in the document for the individual investor as far as, I mean, obviously we can follow these guidelines, but like tips on how to do this or, or would there be a, like an approved list of companies and a, and a list of companies that we shouldn't support that would be I, defined? You know, I don't know if the USCCB actually does that. I think it's the, uh, 
the actual fund managers that we employ. Okay. I know, for example, just on a very personal level, I share these with a financial advisor uh -huh. and even our Diocesan Finance Council and the managers that we have, and they go to work. They're being served by us. We pay for their services. Sure. And then they'll tell us which companies. They'll say, oh, you should divest from this company yeah. if you're yeah. following this. So, But I don't know if we do that on a national level where companies are actually identified. I, I really am not sure. Okay. Do you expect any controversy with this document? I don't it think so. I mean, there might be some. I mean, I don't know that it'd be big controversy, not on the principles. Okay. I think sometimes where there might be some debate is whether you decide to stay investing because you want to influence and, and bring about change. Right. That does seem like a gray area. It's a gray area. You know, I know with the fossil fuel stuff, for example, I know that's. Uh -huh. I know this is being debated in certain places, like in universities, where some would say, "No, stay investing, but try to change the practices and the policies." Others will say, "Well, if you've tried that, it doesn't work, then divest." So well, I think those things are more prudential judgments. And I suppose it kind of depends on how much influence you have. If you only own right. one stock in a company or yeah. two stocks, it might not make any difference. Right. You know, whereas. But if you look at the Catholic Church throughout the country, right. and we're talking about a lot of dioceses, a lot of a lot of universities, a lot of healthcare systems, yeah. imagine all of them. You know, that's a lot of investment money. Yeah, how much maybe influence we can have? Sure. All right. Anything else we should be praying for or aware of that's happening at the meeting? I'd just say, just pray for the the bishops that yeah. we that we discern the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit guides us in all of our, our decisions. All right. Well, thank you, Bishop, for another episode, and we will keep you in our prayers for sure, and all the bishops as you meet. Uh, could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rose is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.